We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week, as usual, is Niall Bradley. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's just the two of us this week. Harrison has gone off to be uh, a monk. <laughs> no, Harrison actually has taken off uh, to do some reporting for us. So um, he won't be back for a while. It'll just back. It's back to the usual, the usual uh, dynamic duo. That's uh, right. With uh, Neil as Batman and me as <coughs> Catwoman. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, we are we as as you've probably seen, we are scheduled uh, to have Garojo Coleman uh, on the show this week. Um, we haven't been able to get to him. He did mention that he was having some computer problems um, to us, uh, so we're just going to have to wait and see if we can get him on the line. But that doesn't mean we can't uh, just carry on here and bring you all of the latest news and analysis on the current state of global shenanigans and what it all means, um, because that's what we do. So we'll just charge ahead and say all the things that we would have asked Garage to say. Yes. Let's start with, uh, we just had another, well, we didn't, but our American listeners enjoyed another Thanksgiving and one of those crazy Black Friday follow-ups. Now, we we know a good few Americans, and they tell us that this is not traditional. This is a relatively new thing. What is? The Black Friday cram, where people like... In America? Yeah, when they go to the store. We've been reporting on it every year. Oh, sure, but it's going back a few years, but it's yeah. not like, it doesn't have old roots or anything. No, it's rampant it's capitalism. It's a crazy thing. Shove I mean, down people's throats. And the videos, is it just me or they get worse every year? I don't know. There's been some pretty bad ones from previous years. I mean, it's just people gone crazy and, you know, fighting and beating the heads of each other for the latest flat screen TV, you know? But uh, they don't even know what they're reaching out for. Uh, they do. Look at the video. It's just grab, grab, grab. No, but they have GPS. They have, like, some kind of radar, you know, some shopper's radar or something where they can just, they know exactly. It's like surgical strikes on the latest flat screen TV, the one with the 75% discount, you know, uh, because, you know, you want to see all of your, all of the latest mind-numbing reality TV shows in uh, giant, glorious HD on a screen bigger than the side of your house. So yeah, it has to happen, you know. How do you, how can you keep, stay hooked up to the mainframe Hooked into the the matrix, basically. If you don't have it in full, glorious HD, super HD, <laughs> uh, bigger than your wall. Watching them scramble over each other, it's like somebody did this montage where there's scenes from you know many stores, many cities. I was thinking someone needs to put this to David Attenborough. Yeah, describing. And here we see the subspecies Americanus shopaholicus. Scrambling over each other as they buy for survival. 
well, that's not what they think they're doing. They think they're having a bit of fun. But, like, it is sort of, you know, we talk about the breakaway civilization of the elites. This is like a breakaway civilization of the masses. This kind of feral, inane, it's not even prompted by survival. Those people don't need those goods to survive, you know. If What would they be behaving like if they were actually in need of goods like water and food? You don't even want to think about that. Okay, so um, we were going to be discussing girls based in Paris, so we were launch into questions. Um, what's his take on what happened in Paris? What the atmosphere there is like? Um, he's obviously not there at the moment with, here with us to <clears throat> tell us, but I want to just say in passing that while people were wondering about and following the headlines coming out of Paris about the cleanup operation afterwards and the the police on the hunt, the perpetrators, which has many bizarre twists and turns in itself. But just in, as a general point, um, not Paris, but Brussels underwent something, Belgium's capital, last week. That was even kind of more bizarre than, than the reaction that Paris went through, where the whole city was basically under... Um, I'm going to say martial law, but in, in brackets, in, in quotes, because it was effectively a martial law. For three days, no no public gatherings were allowed. You were not allowed cafes, restaurants, museums, and just about many or most other public spaces were closed. Um, this mini siege, if you like, was lifted, and things sort of returned back to normal, except they haven't, because we have people who... Uh, sought readers who are in Brussels and they've been telling us that while what they're left with now some two weeks after the Paris attacks is just a increased police and military presence on the streets um, one of our readers said today he was going down to his local market and to get into the actual square everyone had to file up and pass to a metal detector to buy some goods on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. Oh, and no one was allowed to take out a camera and photograph or film any of this, which well, apparently everyone dutifully obeyed, which is kind of frightening thought. Conditioning of the population, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a useful test run for uh, some future event where they would feel, or they feel justified or have justification to do that kind of thing for real, you know? So getting, doing it uh, on a smaller scale uh, based on a terror attack is, uh, is a useful a useful test run, you know, to see how people react. But of course, uh, it's obviously not as black and white as that because uh, in the aftermath of the Paris terror attacks, the police, the, Par uh, the French police, the Paris police basically banned once they uh, imposed or passed all this draconian legislation where they can uh, raid whoever's house they want without a warrant and they banned uh, all public gatherings. Uh, for well, for three months or as long as they as long as they want, basically. Um, today, mm. in the run up to uh, the climate conference in Paris, which is going uh, starting next week, I think, uh, for a couple of weeks or something, um, or a week, there were protests. There were people in the streets in Paris, and they were tear gassed and water cannoned or something, and a hundred people were arrested. 
Uh, of course, and this happened not just in Paris, but in several cities uh, around the world. There was some kind of organized uh, <laughs> global warmers uh, all got out in the streets and they were there, they were there to protest climate change. That's what the, the headlines are saying. These people on the streets protesting climate change. Down with these kind of uh, hailstorms and tornadoes and inundations, earthquakes. Uh, we're, we've had it up to here with all those flash floods. With those flash floods. <laughs> and, uh, and the early snow. Stop it. Stop the early snow. This is just, and they're demanding that the government do something about this natural phenomenon. And uh, the response from their government is to beat their heads and fire tear gas at them. These well, are actually in pro- Paris. They're not even... Like- Huh? Not not the other protests. But they would do it in other places, probably. Right. I'd say. I mean, and at this point... This is any- my question, you see, because global warming is a favorable agenda, so to speak, of Western governments. I mean, yeah. they have many good uses they can extract from it, and they are generally happy for people to protest in large numbers. They have been. They have been. But now terrorism, you throw terrorism into the mix, and you're not allowed to protest about anything, even if it's stuff that your government wants you to protest about because it's backing up their phony theories that they're trying to force, force some people about global warming and, and man-made climate change. So uh, anyway, that was a severe reaction today. Yeah, it, it's got to the point where it's absolutely farcical because um, people are not even allowed to protest. They will be attacked by police for protesting uh, something that the government heretofore wanted them to protest about type of thing, you know, um, or rather People are protesting essentially in favor of one of the big lies foisted on them by their government. So they're out there on the streets in favor of a government manipulation and lie. And the government still cracks down on them because the bottom line at this stage is crack down on people no matter what they're doing. You want as many examples of people being tear gassed and beaten in the streets around the world as possible to deter people in general, from coming out into the streets, yeah. no matter what it's about. I don't care what it's about. We don't want this rabble on the streets for any reason whatsoever. We want to have as much practice as possible. So in that sense, they might want it, but at the same time, they want to um, clamp down on it. They want, to, they want to do it, and they've had lots of practice, obviously, over the past 10 years or whatever, and, and all sorts of protests against the, the G8. and Yeah, generally anti-war protests. Right, generally, yeah. Um, but at this point, it's... Uh, with the terrorism business, terrorism trumps all, essentially. Um, and and they anybody went, in the streets, this could potentially be domestic terrorism. So, hmm. no, no. They went massive. I mean, Place de la République was just a sea of tear gas uh, with the kind of protesters they generally, like I've said, they have never had a problem with before. Hmm. You don't generally get anarchists smashing things at greeny protests, environmental protests. Well, people are people are a bit uh, worked up these days in general mm, for so no, no reason whatsoever kind of thing. Uh, we have an early call here. This is Stephen, a regular caller from Tampa Bay. Hey, Stephen. Yes, yes, this is Stephen. And um, I'm very much looking hey. forward to... Uh, I'm very much looking forward to how the, your uh, conversation evolves today because there's so many... Uh, incredible top that um one can hit upon that yeah. are, are pertinent pertinent and um very much um cogent to this this particular moment but i i, I want to talk about this um global warming and um 
in in my in my kind of interpretation of it, you know, I became a whistleblower. I kind of fall, fell upon my own sword a couple of years ago because I've always been uh, concerned about um, how we humans impact our environment and, and pollution ever since I was a kid. So when, when I look at this, and, and I come out of a um, intellectual uh, molding and in, in tradition of the so-called uh, progressive left, and um, about this subject about you know global warming. Um, I'm very skeptical about it, and, and it's that. And here's my the, my my conflict. Um, I definitely would um, current situation with the uh, you know fossil fuels, you know the burning of it, and, and say that um, yes, um, this this is a human an anthropogenic um, change in our behavior. That is, uh, we are putting these these chemical alterations, these these uh, multitude of uh, substances into our atmosphere and our environment from our uh, behavior uh, of of burning these fossil fuels. But then, um, when I listen to people that are like climate change skeptics, as well as people that are beating the drum, yeah, we're going to tear up our planet, you know. And I, I look at the way the debate is formed. Um, I step back from that, and I'm like, okay. I really, I think the, um, I think this is a, a massive manipulation. And I'm not, I'm not making that determ this determination on whether or not it is true or false that putting these substances into our atmosphere and in our our habits of behavior. I'm not I'm not debating, impugning, or denying that this is is deleterious. It's bad, but the way the that our configuration of the environment and how we and how we affect our environment and how we produce ourselves vis-a-vis -vis our environment and other species, um, I find it very con uh, disconcerting how the the debate. And our focus as a collective humanity goes to this subject of quote unquote climate change, and then um, the big powers from corporations to governments, you know, which are just totally corrupt, anti-democratic. They 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 lull the um, what I see as the progressive left into this debate, and then okay, you're you're a denier, Barian. And so, in other words, um, the, the, um, our focus and energies are, are, um, are, 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 are put into this one subject, and then you're a good guy or a bad guy, a white hat or a black hat, mm -hmm. and then um, isn't, isn't that so convenient for the powers that be, the hierarchical structures that keep us divided and dumb and all isn't that so convenient for them, the powers that be, to have us all focus on this in a warlike, you're either white hat or black hat kind of camp, you know, determination of it, and then, um, you know, but but there's and from my perspective of just looking at the real world, having a business that tries to. Um, help people understand that the more ecological way of doing things vis-a-vis -vis landscaping 
is the more economical, the better, you know, totally logical. Um, but everything gets focused into these camps of either you're you're a you believe it and you want to you want to help the new world order like use this to tax and control us all, or you're um, on the camp that like wow you're you're just a chump for buying into these new world order big government kind of big corporate solutions to this problem. So that's very convenient for the powers that be because people that care and that are concerned about our fate and where we're at right now and also have uh, the people that have an imagination that we could do better, we're all caught up in these conflicting camps. You know, you're you're a bad guy if you deny that – you know, all of this stuff, um, you know, these, these CO2 and all that um, hurts our environment. You're just a bad guy. But there's so many, like, thousands of, of issues and concerns with respect to how we relate to our environment, how we produce ourselves as humans day to day, our patterns of behaviors. There's just thousands of these other issues that we could focus on that, would, that we could devote our energies toward that would have a real life impact but um and that but that would require democratic solidarity becoming more intelligent working with people so isn't it so convenient that we just focus on this climate change white hat black hat you know and that's how it just it just rolls and that's that's my my main insight from the the topic of uh you know this this dominant topic, and I wanted to see how what what you guys, you know, how how you react to what I'm saying here. Well said, Stephen. Um, don't anybody mistake our admittedly sarcastic opening comments about environmental protests and so on for a refusal or a failure on our part to recognize that Fukushima was a crime against people and planet, or at least the handling of the fallout from Fukushima. The BP oil spill disaster in the Gulf of Mexico was a crime against people and planet, among countless others. Where, where we agree with you here is that the reaction to it is vectored and in the end is dissipated by its failure to recognize that the source of it ultimately comes from the top and is the source of all the other problems, wars, austerity measures. These things must go hand in hand. And you cannot look at climate change, in quotes, in isolation, because there they have you where they want you. There they have you in a situation where it's all your fault. And if you would just recycle goods properly, if you would just stop eating meat, everything will be fine. And the usual bullshit they throw about, about how you're going to save things. So, yeah, Stephen, I mean, uh, uh, you don't, I mean, uh, I guess from what you're saying there that uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of nonsense to think that the, the people who <laughs> run this world, the, the politicians and stuff, actually give a shit about uh, the climate and climate change and anything happening to the planet uh, from regardless of, uh, of what it is that humans are doing or what they claim humans are doing uh, to, to cause it. That's a ruse. They don't, they don't care, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with that, yes. Because, and, I mean, um, they're, happy, I, I, they're happy to have these kind of, uh, 
have have these uh, conferences like they're having in Paris next week and stuff, and get everybody get a, get all the politicians together to to kind of like oh you know wring their hands over it and and, and get everybody concerned about it. But that's just a way to to kind of. Uh, consolidates their power or their sense of their own power in that, uh, yeah, we're going to do something about this and you yeah, know, people yeah, are having and, this and, bad effect and y'all are very bad. Yes, and, 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 and I'll just say this, like, like you know, I'll just remind you again that, you know, I come out of this progressive left, you know, as a, I was never an activist in that community. And as a matter of fact, um, as I've seen how things have played out, you know, I see how that there's a lot of these intellectuals that are just, in my opinion, fairly, uh, they're, they're pretty corrupt scam artists. And I, I saw that happen with uh, Libya and um, now now Syria. And I see a lot of these people that they write articles and like, oh, it's a, those damn uh, climate change deniers. And it's like there's so many things that we could do that would entail us getting off our butt, cooperating with our neighbors, doing something different but with that but all of those actions would be outside of this consumerist model um outside of this logic where we 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 go to Huffington Post and we see who these bad climate change deniers are and you know so to me I'm I'm just watching like an incredible ruse being played out that just perpetuates a divide and conquer yeah mhm yeah, I mean, the other thing is that a vast amount of money is actually thrown at this, uh, you know, these measures that they put in place for uh, for dealing with climate change, all these different kind of different NGOs and groups that, that investigate and study it and, and, and getting money from uh, or, or um, supposedly taking money from corporations uh, or, or charging corporations money for their carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, that money, all of that money uh, comes from the public purse or the majority of it comes from the public purse. So when these people, when these politicians get worked up about climate change, what they're getting worked up about is, is the opportunity for them to pilfer or to extract more money from more taxpayer money and funnel it into uh, kind of private accounts and private organizations who, who, who get rich off it, right? I mean, that's pretty much everything that concerns politicians and everything that they lobby for, if you look at it, ultimately is, is to justify more theft of taxpayers' money and the funneling yep. of it up into, into the private, private coffers, you know. And the more they do that, the harder ordinary people have to work. And that's why the most valuable resource, we want to talk about resources in this planet in terms of, you know, oil or gas or anything else, or food, any kind of other resources, water and stuff, the most valuable resource on this planet is human beings and the sweat of their brow and how much these politicians can force the ordinary people of this world to continue to work harder and harder and harder so they, the politicians, get richer and richer. Yes, and I, and I totally agree with that. And what, what I'm seeing is that, um, you know what, um, this um, it's totally corrupt. I do not buy into any of this carbon trading and all that, but what I find interesting is that I just see in everyday life how people could actually save money. They could have access to uh, quality food with no chemicals. Right. If only we, we came together in our own neighborhoods to to increase our intelligence, to learn new things, to develop solidarity and understanding that um, 
we can like totally go around these larger structures of corporations and how we we obtain our food and all of that. It's totally possible, and it's totally doable in our everyday lives in our neighborhoods. But then we have this um, this larger subject of like quote unquote climate change. It's being used to like divide and conquer to keep you focused on this larger inscrutable issue that nobody's ever going to come out with the smoking gun and say it's definitely uh we're definitely doing this and because everybody um that develops any information works within these larger institutions that are tied to state power that are corrupt so mm-hmm. i just think i just think that the way the conversation rolls is a way that almost everybody you ever talk to knows that what we're doing right now, our way of being, how we produce ourselves, is unsustainable. Whether you're you're talking to a very right winger or whatever, most mm-hmm. people really know that how we produce ourselves is unsustainable, polluting our planet. It's causing it's going to lead to uh, all kinds of havoc and deterioration into the future. But we are denied, or this this larger debate about climate change totally takes our focus on what away from what we can do right now in our own neighborhoods in both the right wing and the left wing um, structures that are institutionalized play into it. And um, I, I'm looking at the left wing progressive press, you know, and they, they totally play into it. And there's just like a small cadre of uh, thinkers and intellectuals that make a good living off of uh, presenting opinions and comments, and they're making great, like, living, comfortable, upper-middle-class living on just perpetuating it. And my question is this, you know, like, wow, I really want to see something change on the ground, and the first thing that I need to do is recognize um, what I am up against and what everybody else is up against, and that's recognizing the... uh, the really cynical and manipulative and um, fruitless dominant conversation about climate change um, believers and climate change deniers because logically the whole argument just doesn't make sense because everybody knows whether you went to college or even graduated high school that we've always had, you know, there's a, there's changes in the Earth's atmosphere so there's always going to be changes in the patterns of climate. So um, anyway, I just I just right. wanted to throw that out there. And um, just having having said that, um, you know, I would I would also like y'all's um, interpretation of what happened with vis-a-vis uh, in Russia and Syria this yeah. past week, which I know you guys are going to touch on. But when I called in yesterday to the uh, Truth Perspective, you know, I made a comment like, "Wow, you know." It's totally inconceivable to me that Turkey did this outside of the the aegis and the control and cooperation of the United States government. So if that is the case, how could Turkey ever interpret that this would actually play out to Turkey's advantage? And then we have a leader in Turkey who has neo-Ottoman kind of like delusional, um, you know, magno megalomaniacal uh, aspirations, and mm. it seems to me that the United States totally played this guy Erdogan, totally played him. Yeah. And um, but then and then so if that is the case, 
you know, why? Because this is not going to serve Turkey's um, uh, political stability and economic stability in the short or long term because they've totally alienated Russia. And uh, right. so that what what advantage, you know, how does this play out? What were the United States, what is the, the, the NATO-U.S. goals? What were they, what is the long-term game plan? And um, what I mentioned yesterday, and I'm going to hang up after this, but what I mentioned yesterday is that my interpretation of what's going on with respect to Syria, Russia, all that, is that the United States, despite all of its power, all of its like Hollywood, you know, its 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 hegemonic dominance that has been going on for decades, they're losing the narrative uh, because they've made so they're, they're so corrupt. They've made so many alliances to affect short-term goals in the Middle East, you know, that have actually funded the same terrorist groups that attacked on 9-11. And they right. can't – they painted themselves in a corner, and um, they really totally lost control of the dominant narrative that convinces the world population, you know, of nations and cultures and people who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And the United States and their alliances with Turkey – and Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Israel, all of it comes to play to where they've totally done things to where they just don't have any prospects of turning it around and re and, and rebooting as far as the narrative dominance of how things play out in the, in that right. region. In any way, gonna, um, so, the U.S. is going to bullshit the way out of it, Stephen, but... Uh... Uh, you can be sure they're going to try and bullshit the way out of it. That's what they've got. They've got no uh, an unlimited supply of bullshit uh, to explain themselves. Of course, it's not going to hold any water. It's going to get more and more obvious as they go on, but they're going to keep trying. But, um, but listen, we're going to answer all those questions starting okay, now, actually, but we'll let, you, we'll let you go. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Bye. Steve. Take care. Joe, we need some answers here. What are the questions? <laughs> what the hell was recipe Erdogan thinking when he ordered a Turkish jet to shoot down a Russian jet inside Syria on Tuesday last week? What was he thinking? Well, first of all, there's a question over whether or not he ordered anything. But he pretty much owned it right after. Right. But here's the problem. Uh-huh. He owned it. And I kind of use this analogy. I'm not saying this is exactly the truth, but... We can explore it, and people can answer the question for themselves what's on the base of it. But there's a lot more details around this going into history and going kind of forward even uh, that need to be talked about uh, in, terms of to try and, in terms of trying to understand what went on. Because what went on, as you just said, Neil, was extremely <clears throat> uh, stupid or appeared to be a very stupid thing mm -hmm. for, and still appears to be a very stupid thing that uh, the Turkish government or the Turk, Turkish prime minister or president or whatever did. Uh, they shoot this plane down. Someone shoots, something shoots this plane down. For a start, uh, there's no, obviously no pictures, no images, no video of any F-16 shooting down the plane. Okay, let's assume that that's true. It was shot down by a plane. Uh, there are plenty of Turkish air bases just over the border in Turkey from where a plane, an F-16 could have gone up and shot, shot it down, probably from Turkish airspace. A real sneaky, as Putin said, stab in the back uh, from a 
distance of five, seven kilometers away. They just apparently done stealthily because the Russian didn't pick up anything coming their way. Well, no, yeah. I mean, they did it. Maybe the Russians weren't looking for it. Uh, they certainly weren't. Uh, I mean, you have to remember, this wasn't a Russian jet, as they keep calling it. Okay, it was a jet in the sense that it's a jet engine, but it was a bomber. This wasn't oh. a fighter aircraft. This was an SU-24 strategic bomber. It's designed to target uh, the ground. It's designed for bombing, not for fighting or for engaging in kind of dogfights, and therefore it wouldn't have the same kind of electronics to engage in that kind of air-to-air combat. So it was effectively a soft target, an easy target for an F-16, for example, a fighter jet, which is a fighter jet, uh, to target. So a missile was fired from probably inside Turkey, kind of standard range is about five, seven kilometers away. You would launch one of those missiles at this bomber. It would just, you know, hit you from behind and down it goes. Um, The question is, uh, why... Immediately afterwards, well, immediately afterwards, there was silence, effectively. All we heard was that Erdogan, the Turkish government, uh, ran screaming to NATO mm. and wrote a quick letter to the UN. Which you, got leaked, in quotes. Which got leaked by, supposedly by WikiLeaks. So their immediate response is, to me, that's immediate response is, oh my God, let's, what the hell just happened? Quick, cover our asses. Mm. Let's go and do something about this. Seems an unusual response from someone who supposedly did this coldly and calmly, with uh, you know, what you would expect to be uh, an anticipation for of a reaction of a reaction. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's the first thing. The next thing is then within a day, within 24 hours, Erdogan and <clears throat> his prime minister are getting all kind of um, belligerent. Um, We're not saying sorry. You say sorry. We have to protect our airspace. We'll protect the... It's your fault. Yeah, it's all your fault, Russia. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. So really rubbing salt in the wound, a very stupid thing to do uh, in that sense, although understandable because when you take an aggressive, uh, make an aggressive move against... And uh, someone uh, who who has the potential to respond to you, I suppose you have a choice. You either keep the ante up or you back down and you've got to weigh up what's the best option there. I mean, what's in your best interest? It's a, it's a fair complete. It's done. Uh, the analogy I've been using is, just proposing this, this scenario, the analogy I've been, I've been using is Russia and Turkey are standing facing each other. Russia turns its back for a moment. Someone comes in, stabs Russia in the back, and then sticks the bloody knife in, in Turkey's hand and runs away. Russia turns around and sees Turkey standing there with a bloody knife in its hand. What's, what's Turkey going to say? Mm-hmm. Oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Or are they going to say, yeah, freaking Russia, you deserved that because you were doing stuff. Um, but then... Within the past couple of days, we've seen uh, Erdogan flip-flopping again and saying... Uh, it wasn't so bad, was it? Not, not just not so bad. He said he was the, that he's sad, saddened by the fact, by, by the, because of the shoot-down, and that he wishes it never happened. Mm. I mean, is this all just posturing? If so, you're not keeping your story here, straight here, Erdogan. I mean, you're either shirt-fronting, as the Australian former Australian Prime Minister would have said, shirt-fronting Putin... Or, or you're not, or you're you're striking a conciliatory note, and you want to get over this, you know? I mean, what is it? That whole thing is just was just so ridiculous and insane. It's hard to figure out 
make, to make any sense of it and to understand what the motivation was here. Um, obviously, Russia is responding, has responded with uh, by, by passing effectively sanctions against Turkey on several different fronts that uh, apparently is going to hurt Turkey to a certain extent uh, economically. Russia has upped it's the very day afterwards it upped its bombing in that region. So if, if look at it this way, this SU-24, these jets are flying and they're bombing a particular area up there in the corner, western corner of Syria on the Turkish border, uh, at Turkmen Mountain, where supposedly Turkmen live. Uh, the very next day, <coughs> oh, sorry, this, this plane is shot down <coughs> by the Turkish. You think, well, Turkey didn't like the fact that uh, Russia was bombing that particular area. Um, so they shoot down the plane. Uh, a very uh, easily anticipated response is that Russia is going to continue to bomb or bomb more heavily yeah. that place the next day. Bad idea. <sighs> Turks are stupid, right? I mean, uh, what, what a ridiculous thing. You couldn't anticipate that. Mm. Um, the other possibility is, <clears throat> as has been said, um, uh, Russia had been uh, uh, previously at least bombing the oil trucks that have been much talked about, these oil trucks from ISIS, stolen ISIS oil from Syria, that I suppose, according to Putin anyway, that's these right. long 36, 37, 40 kilometer long trains effectively of, of oil trucks coming from Syria and going into Turkey. Turkey. <clears throat> Putin's like, really, you didn't know about this? He apparently okay. shows people at right. the G20, sat this, this photos his fighters took from 6,000 meters up. Right. He's bombing these oil trucks uh-huh. as well. Turkey's not happy with that. Someone, let's say someone in Turkey is not happy with that. So Supposedly, Erdogan's brother right. was involved with this. Right. His son. His son, excuse me, right. So his son is supposedly, but this is all kind of speculation, but it's, it's obvious that someone in Turkey is handling stolen oil from Syria. Uh, stolen ISIS oil. I, oil that ISIS has stolen from Syria is being channeled into Turkey and uh, the Russians are bombing it which are pretty easy targets. I mean, not only is it, are they more or less civilian uh, trucks, they're not military vehicles, they're also full of flammable liquid. So it must be fun to bomb those. I would have fun bombing those. Um, so that, that, that's been talked about as well, obviously, uh, that this, is, this could be an, another reason why this was a red line, a bridge too far for the Turkish government. You're bombing... Our, our, loose. our money, yeah. basically. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> the problem here is that anything, if any of these analyses, the analysis in this direction, it's really clear that you're going to piss off Russia. I mean, if you sh- whatever any any Russian plane you shoot down that is engaged in a particular bom- a bombing of a particular area. If you shoot that plane down, you have to be an idiot to not expect that what you're simply going to do is incur further and more extensive bombing of that area. Mm-hmm. They now, apparently leveled the area with the Turkmen right, the next day. Right. So uh, take your pick, really. Uh, the Turks are idiots and were just desperate and shot down this plane because they're angry and here the moment. Stop bombing our oil trucks, stop bombing our Turkmen. And then the 
You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Good job. Okay. So it doesn't sound like the kind of uh, action that so a military a leadership, leader. military political leadership would take. Mm-hmm. So then we look at the results. So you've got the stupid explanation. Turkey just stupid because that's what everybody seems to be, most people seem to be going with them in one, one sense or another. But look at the result. The best thing to do in these situations is look at the result. What is the broad result of this uh, shoot down of the Russian plane? Apart from the bombing, Russia's bombing of continued bombing, etc. The broad result is a souring of relationships between Turkey and Russia. Which was doing as well as up to Right. Well, Putin himself said that, stream going through Turkey right. last year. Pipelines going from Russia through Turkey towards Europe. It had been planned. It hadn't been finalized yet, but the, the Turkish stream, effectively it was called, was a new pipeline coming from. This was after the EU on the orders of NATO in 2014 cancelled South Stream, which was meant to run through the Caspian Sea into um, Bulgaria. Bulgaria. The EU put pressure on Bulgaria to stop that, to screw the Russians over. So the Russians said, okay, Turkey... Let's do a deal. Let's run straight through Turkey and over to Greece that way. Uh, Turkey said, okay. This is just last year. They've been talking about it. Even this year, they, earlier this year, they've been finalizing details on it. Um, and Putin himself said that that uh, he was very, he described it as a, as a stab in the back by accomplices of terrorists. Right? And they take actions against Turkey. Now, just because he said accomplices of terrorists doesn't mean he was referring necessarily to Turkey or to the Turkish government. But he certainly let people on to believe so. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, by taking action against Tur- Turkey. He also, what he said is we don't have a problem with the Turkish people, but we have questions about the Turkish government. <clears throat> what does that mean? And he referred to the Islamization. Right. Well, right. Well, what does that mean? So these are all. This is all very cryptic, as usual, from Putin. But he said that it was a stab in the back because, as far as Putin, Putin's concerned, Turkey was an ally, or more or less an ally. He said they had good relationships, and it was more or less or close to an ally of Russia. By shooting down this plane, Turkey basically destroys or goes a long way to destroying that relationship. Why would Turkey do that? What's in it for Turkey? Um, so we've got Turkey is stupid on one hand, and or someone else is extremely kind. Right. Well, who who would want to thwart uh, or destroy the relationship between Turkey and Russia? Who, who benefits? Who has been trying to destroy relationships between Russia and everybody else over the past four or five years? Washington. Okay, that's pretty transparent. The U.S. has, uh, uh, under NATO, and under the, uh, and as the U.S. in itself, has many aircraft in, in air, uh, air bases in Turkey. We're saying the missile was fired from Turkey. Uh, the U.S., the Brits as well, have been flying planes, aircraft from Turkey into Syria and into Iraq. So the question of who owned this plane is an open question because it could have been from, it could have been Turkish, it could have been American, it could have been British. Even if it was under a Turkish flag, remember back to our discussion with the NATO guy, I've forgotten his name, I remember his comment about how when you buy weapons in in the NATO system, you also get the NATO software and so on and so forth, up to the point of being able to remotely 
right. have control over that weaponry. Right. So I don't see, unless you go with the Turkey is crazy, Erdogan's nuts, uh, or he acted irrationally in the heat of the moment, which is more or less that he's nuts. Um, you are going if you're, if you're unless you're going to go with that explanation, which doesn't seem plausible. You're going to have to look at a kind of, to a certain extent, a false flag. That doesn't necessarily mean. Um, well, okay, yes, a false flag of some description. Effectively, Turkey's hand was forced, and Turkey was forced to, in the aftermath of. Uh, of doing it to make a to make a, a decision. Um, there's a few interesting things that I want I want to mention. Um, there's a picture if you're watching if you're if you're listening to this show. Um, I know we put up a lot of pictures on the player there, but there's a picture of um, of a group of guys in front of a, a flag. You can forward through the right image banner. Uh, this guy is called, the guy we're talking about, uh, he is in this image, his name's Al Parslan Selik. He was the guy who was on TV, uh, was recorded after the shootdown of the Russian plane. Uh, he has a bit of a goatee beard, he set up a scarf on his head and a goatee beard. And he was the one who was kind of grandstanding and, and, and gloating over the shootdown of this plane and claiming that he shot down, uh, that they, him and his friends, shot at the two Russian pilots, and he even went as far as saying that they had killed both of them, which wasn't true. This guy was clearly there to make matters worse. Um, it's one thing to shoot down a Russian jet in contested airspace, let's say, or under a claim of that it had infiltrated Turkish airspace, mm-hmm. uh, and for the pilots to eject and them to be left alone. It's another thing for one of them to be murdered as he parachutes down. A that war is, crime. That is a war crime and really pushes the kind of declaration of war, extremely aggressive act against Russia, really across across the limit. So my analysis of it will be at this point that um, that aspect of this uh, event, of the shoot-down, the shooting of the one of the pilots was was a key aspect to it. Um, so I'm kind of um, leaving it open here to a certain extent by saying that it's possible Erdogan, this is a deeper conspiracy theory than the one I just presented, uh, other than the false flag, it's possible that Erdogan and his government was aware uh, or even sanctioned the shooting down of the plane, but was not aware or had not sanctioned the murder of the Russian pilot, which made matters much worse. Indeed, because on the same day of the event, they did say they were going to try and recover the two pilots. Right, exactly. And then it later emerged, well, right. actually, you can't now, one of them's dead. Right. And, he and was somebody's de- been shooting at the Russian rescue right. team. He was deliberately shot. Them. And shooting at the Russian rescue team, not only did they shoot down the plane, but when the when rescue hel- hel- helicopters came, uh, Russian helicopters came to, to rescue, uh, one of them was attacked and was blown up, and one of the Marines on that pilot, on that uh, helicopter, rescue helicopter, was killed. Mm-hmm. So it goes from a, a, a shoot down of a Russian plane by Turkish Air Force that might plausibly that be might plausibly, to fog of war slash... Exactly. Yeah. To the deliberate murder of two Russian servicemen. That puts it in a whole different ballpark, That's I would someone's say. putting a knife in Russia, twisting it, and then right. giving it to right. Erdogan. Exactly. 
So the, the, the point here is uh, who this guy was. Yes, what were his connections? This guy who claimed to have shot the Russian pilot or was responsible for Russia, shooting the Russian pilot. In the, in the picture that we're talking about, he is seen with a group of men. And behind them, there's a flag. It's a blue flag. And all, the most you can see on it is a white crescent moon. But just behind his shoulder, you can also see what appears to be maybe the edge of a star. A lot of people have said that this is an example of, this flag is effectively uh, the flag of a group called the Grey Wolves. The Grey Wolves uh, is a group, effectively a NATO gladio type group uh, that was Turkey's version of NATO's kind of gladio or uh, paramilitary organizations that were uh, NATO spread around European countries uh, after the end of the Second World War to effectively keep all of Europe uh, from falling into the, under the influence of, of, of the Russians, to keep them under NATO's uh, well, banner. Ostensibly, in the event of a Russian invasion of Europe, right. for them to come out from underground, but effectively right. but they what did happen well, in they practice. Did, well, they did it preemptively. Yes. They did that preemptively. Any sign of any, any sign of a drift in any direction, anybody who was, tar- who was seen as being in any way uh, independent-minded or even communist or socialist, uh, they were targeted. Politicians and any groups were targeted, and the populations of European countries were terrorized effectively uh, by phony. A lot of these groups were actually phony leftist groups who would carry out bombings, etc., and claim that they were leftist groups, but they were actually NATO groups to demonize the left, to demonize any kind of communist because uh, or, or socialist or independence uh, in, in Europe. So this applied to Turkey as well, very much so. Mm-hmm. This, these groups were in Turkey, and one of them. <clears throat> It's called the Grey Wolves. They're actually associated with uh, the National what's it called? National Democratic Movement, uh, which is the third biggest political party in Turkey right now. And they were formed back in the 60s.
local radio, but we get cut off. I have to call back in via. Um, he thinks they're in league with the NSA. It's a conspiracy. Yes, they keep doing this. Just. Anyway, we were talking about this guy who went on Turkish and the international media boasting about how he and his boys had shot at the two Russian pilots as they came down. They parachuted down. Joe noticed something, among others, noticed it too, that uh, they had this flag and a particular emblem on it. Which, it was a, it's, a, it's a blue flag with uh, a crescent, white crescent moon on it, and look, look, it looks to have also a star. Uh, basically, this group that I was talking about, the Grey Wolves, that were basically a NATO uh, operation, NATO paramilitary operation that has uh, existed in Turkey. It's affiliated with the uh, um, political party in Turkey called the National Democratic Movement, which are uh, uh, kind of radical right-wing nationalist or organization. This party is very much still active. Although right. the, the paramilitary wing presumably is the paramilitary a wing. close file. Well, no, it, they never went away. Okay. They, they're still around and they've, they've played a part in Turkish politics for a long time, uh, right up until the present day. So this group, that this guy who shot down the Russian pilot, uh, he's standing in front of a, a flag and that flag, a blue flag with a crescent moon, it's similar to a flag, uh, the flag of this grey wolves, which is a blue flag with a crescent moon and a, and a howling wolf in, in the middle of the crescent moon. Now, but he doesn't have a howling wolf in his. His is the sky blue flag with a, with a white crescent moon and a star. That star is um, the that that flag, that star is the flag of East Turkestan. Ah. Uh, in the in the image, you see also that <clears throat> I think there's four of them. Two of them have their they're doing their jihadi one finger salute, which is you know there's only one God but Allah, etc. But the two guys, this guy who shot down the the pilot of the Russian plane and on a friend a friend beside him, they have uh, the devil's horns salute sticking up, right, which is is used all around the world for different reasons. What he's using it for is as a symbol of the grey wolves. Those are the two horns sticking up are the grey wolves here ears. And of course, it's not a, there's there's not a lot between the East Turkestan or the the, the movement for uh, an independent East Turkestan and the Grey Wolves because basically they're the same thing. This group that I'm talking about, the Grey Wolves, and this uh, third biggest political party in um, in Turkey, the Grey Wolves being the the paramilitary wing of it, um, they espouse right-wing nationalist Turkish ideology, which is basically uh, a new Turkish empire, effectively, going from Turkey all the way across into Central Asia, well, right over to, basically, into China. China, to, East to, Turkmenistan, to Jiangxin. Goes into China. Right, East, East Turkestan, or East Turkmenistan. Uh, Sorry, East Turkestan. East Turkestan is an area in China, uh, right on the border with Afghanistan. For example, if you look at a map, you'll see that Afghanistan has a very small little thin land border with China. Uh, and if you just follow that little uh, channel from Afghanistan into China, you're in East Turkestan, which makes pretty clear, uh, at least gives you one good reason uh, why the U.S. invaded and have occupied Afghanistan and still occupy Afghanistan mm-hmm. to this day. Um, but anyway, it's a very strange story because you have the, these guys in Turkey and thousands of miles away um, they are lobbying for 
That's right. They have a lobby in Washington. Well, thousands of miles away in China, they have they, they are lobbying or they are they are fighting effectively for the freedom of East, East Turkestan, which is part of China. And Jiangxing, I think, is, is the Chinese name for the region. Um, so anyway, this this organization that espouses uh, Turkic kind of revolutionary movement to unite all Turkic-speaking people, which is obviously Turkey. Uh, there's some of them in Azerbaijan, then all of the stands mm-hmm. of the former Soviet Republic, including Turkmenistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, um, all of them, uh, and also a chunk of China. And in the China, they, they all want to. These guys want to um, unite those peoples in one new Tur- Turkic Empire, Turkestan Empire, or something. That's their ideology. And that's a flag, and this guy sitting in front of it. So this guy, um, who shot down a Russian plane, is uh, a member of this organization. Uh, and so it's no, and wants to be seen as such. I mean, if they're going to have a flag, right, in front but, of the TV. But this great, right? But this Grey Wolves group, they, I mean, they were, they, they played a serious part. Just to just to, to clarify for people here, that what we're talking about is. The guy on TV who claimed he shot down or shot the Russian pilot after the plane, the Russian plane was shot down, is a member of the Grey Wolves, which is a, a Turkish paramilitary organization that is known to have been effectively a NATO-controlled group in Turkey. Uh, throughout the, eight, the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, they were, they're basically murderers. They killed, people say that they killed, there's claims that they've killed up to 6,000 people over that period of time through bombings, massacres, all sorts of things. They, they were a real destabilizing force in Turkey. Yeah. They engaged or were part, played direct roles in coups in Turkey over those years. Yeah. So, and they're known, and it has been talked about repeatedly in the Western press, even, but definitely inside Turkey, and there's been investigations public investigations into this group in Turkey and they're very well known as being effectively controlled by uh, NATO. Yeah, or come under the NATO umbrella. There were so this guy who, this guy who is basically who is standing there giving interviews to police interviews with the media about shooting down the 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 pilot is a member. But one of the other things that they that this Grey Wolf did was they that they fought um, in Chechnya, they fought in several different places where NATO had an interest. Uh, one of them being Chechnya, uh, and they fought on the Chechen separatist side in the first and second Chechen wars. Uh, that's why the Russians said this area is riddled with Chechen terrorists. Exactly. Uh-huh. Why was Russia bombing that area? Because Russia had intelligence, at least, that the people that they said at the very beginning, that Russia said at the very beginning of their airstrikes, that part of the reason, one of the reasons they were, well, I think this was largely their only reason, of course, they're there to uh, support Assad, but their main reason was that they were, they were terrorists, jihadi terrorists in Syria, who posed a threat to Russia in terms of them being able to go to Russia after being in Syria and attack Russia. Now, the day that the Russian plane is shot down by an F-16 piloted by someone, there are these 
this member, these guys, these Turk men or Turkic men in Syria, uh, shooting down and killing a Russian pilot. And these people have a history, the organization has a history of fighting in Chechnya against the Russians. So, the plot thickens. There's another connection, isn't there? This guy who spoke in front of the camera, this grey wolf, this lone wolf, Mm -hmm. he's not a lone wolf, of course, he's connected. He's very connected. He's the son of a former mayor of a town in Turkey. Right, of a town in Turkey, yeah. And this mayor also was renowned as a right-wing... Right. I think he was a member of that MHP party. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this guy is up to his neck. He's a fully on board, uh, signed up member of uh, NATO's paramilitary organization inside Turkey. And he's there on scene shooting at the Russian pilot who's falling down. I mean, to me, and internationally, he's therefore posing as a rebel against the Assad regime. Right. Moderate rebel, in quotes. Right. Now, where it gets complicated, Erdogan's and, and that clique within Turkey, what their motivation is. Uh, do they want to protect these people? Possibly, yes. Uh, not not because they want to use them to attack Russia as jihadis or anything like that, but they want to have <clears throat> people that they they can um, that, that are in some way loyal to them. I don't even know if these guys are loyal to the Erdogan government because certainly the Grey Wolves are not. They're, they're affiliated with a, with, a, with a party that's in opposition to uh, Erdogan's uh, AK party. But if, if Erdogan's explanation of uh, if his if, if his claim of having uh, shot down or having been part of shooting down or having sanctioned the shooting down the Russian plane was because, um, well, he didn't give a good explanation, did he? I mean, what we're assuming here is that uh, Russia was bombing somewhere along that kind of Syrian-Turkish border, bombing people that Erdogan didn't want him to bomb. And Erdogan, in general, does not want... Uh, he's obviously... One thing we can say is that he's obviously... He, he, has a, he, he, doesn't, he wants to get rid of the Assad government. He doesn't like the Syrian government. Um, he's been... A, he's been fully supportive of the jihadis and the overthrow of the Assad government for a long time. So his interest with the others converges. His interest with the West converges. Saudis, Qatars. But Erdogan has, and and the people behind Erdogan, have their own interest in preventing the Kurds, for example, or not for example, the Kurds in particular, from gaining any ground or staking a claim to any kind of independent country, etc., or independent region in that area. Because the, Tur- the Kurds have a long history of, obviously, conflict with the Turkish government and wanting their own independent country, their own uh, Kurdistan. <clears throat> a Kurdistan, in theory, would incorporate parts of Turkey, parts of Syria, parts of Iraq, and even parts of Iran, if they could get it. So if you look at a map again and imagine a circle cutting off pieces of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, <clears throat> and back to Turkey, let's say, let's leave, let's leave Iran out, but let's say Turkey, uh, Syria, mm-hmm. and Iraq in a circle. It's a fairly big country. It would be, if, if, if they could get some of this. Here's the last thing um, 
the last thing that obviously that any Turk wants, and they fought a long, a long war with the Kurds to prevent them from getting any kind of independence. That doesn't mean that I think is where they, the Turks and the West uh, part ways, part company. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. has been continually supporting the Kurds in their fight against ISIS. Um, Israel is a long-term supporter of the Kurds. The U.S. also supported the Kurds in their fight against Saddam Hussein right. back in the early 90s. Right. <clears throat> when you talk about the Grand Chessboard, uh, Brzezinski's Grand Chessboard, or the Great Game, whatever you want to call it, uh, why, did he use, why did Brzezinski use that analogy of Grand Chessboard? Uh, well, because it's a game of chess, right? But uh, if you think about chess, what do you do in chess? You you move pieces to block uh, your opponent, um, and you keep in mind in the pa- several moves going on, right? Potentially, in the past, their moving of the pieces on the grand chessboard has been to um, has been to destabilize countries and overthrow governments, etc. And they and they get control, you know, control of the board effectively by taking control of certain countries, etc. But there's another possibility, which is like as you move your piece on the board, for example, you're creating something new in that square on the board as a block. If they were able to create a Kurdistan, or to create the conditions where a Kurdistan could be created, as I just described in that area, you would have a country, and they, and they certainly hope to control it and for it to be aligned with the West, some kind of autonomous Kurdistan, they would have a very effective block for Iranian or Iraqi or Syrian gas or oil going through into into Turkey or in, and therefore into the West. They would effectively control a chunk of land right at the point. They would have created a new, a new country effectively right at the point where a lot of gas and oil uh, land uh, pipelines would be would be transiting. <clears throat> so, the U.S. strategy, the Western strategy, has been to fund and train the jihadis to get rid of of Syria. This was the beginning of, of uh, get rid of the Syrian, Syrian government. This has been the plan at the beginning. But as it evolved, uh, and Turkey was on board with that because everybody wanted to get rid of Assad. Uh, Turkey then, as, as things started to become clear, maybe to Turkey, and they saw which way the wind was blowing, they're, they're now at this point dividing or, or changing, uh, splitting in terms of their <clears throat> their goals and what they want. They're, they're diverging from, from the West. Um, yeah. The next day, there was an airstrike on a convoy coming from Turkey into Syria. Yeah. And I couldn't be sure, but there was a photo of one of the boxes that fell out of one of these trucks in the convoy, and it looked like the same insignia. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I saw a wolf, but it was the same light color blue, mm-hmm. crescent and star. Mm-hmm. And that's opening another little can of worms that probably ties into this. The convoy was under the aegis of the IHH, which is a well-known humanitarian organization, NGO, Turkish NGO. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is kind of... Uh, nobody has, as far as I know, nobody has owned up to bombing that convoy, but no. there was claimed that there was not full of humanitarian aid, but weapons mm-hmm. heading into Syria. Yeah. So, I mean, it is by, <clears throat> by definition 
and almost necessarily a very complicated situation and very hard to tease out because you have shifting loyalties and changing loyalties even from day to day almost or from week to week um, and people are getting uh, becoming more aware of um, let's say that the West effectively because all of these regime changes are ultimately motivated and, and launched from the West from uh, the center center of evil in this world, which is more or less Washington and the state of London. Uh, so when they come into a country and, and, and begin a kind of uh, overthrow like they have in Syria, the countries around uh, may be on board at the beginning. But as things start to develop, I mean, no one should ever trust these, the, the empire, basically, because they will screw you over in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, arrogance and uh, hubris among the regional powers might lead them to think that they can, uh, if they're aware of, of uh, if they're smart enough to not be, to not trust the empire, they may be thinking that they can uh, screw them over or get what they want out of it. I mean, that's which may have been Erdogan's turn to Putin last year. Right. I'm going to play both things. Just to go back on the greater Turkic mm. empire, mm. I can just imagine this. This has happened before where to get somebody on board with a program, in this case, destabilizing Syria, get rid of Assad, go into Turkish years, mm-hmm. you know, they let it be known that this is a possible future for you. They don't ever maybe promise them exactly. Mm-hmm. but and, and then they show them evidence of this reality being a very real possibility. Mm-hmm. They, so the Turks will know that the East Turkmenistan slash Xinjiang lobby in Washington has the ears of very powerful people mm-hmm. and therefore has American support. Okay, so that's our other end over there is covered. And they've, they've, they've been led into something by being led to believe that they will win right. this, this great, glorious national goal out of it. Right. When or they never had any intention. No. Or, or it could be ditched in a heartbeat. Right. Yeah, I mean... It's a bit of a it's a bit pie in the sky for them to have this uh, this ideology, this Turkic speaking people's ideology, um, where they're going to unite some Turkic empire from Turkey all the way across uh, <clears throat> all, the, China. all the way across to China, basically not contiguous all the way, but in a lot of those stands and into China and stuff, you would I have think, some Turkic empire. But I think Erdogan would have been promised something uh, certainly in the, in, the, in the near future would have been mm. would have been allowed to believe that. Uh, with the destruction of Turkey, he would have got a chunk of Turkey. Uh, sorry, with the destruction of Syria, with the removal of the Syrian government and the change in Syrian government, and Turkey would have got a chunk of Syria over the border. He would have expanded Turkish, um, Turkish territory. But as it turns out, I think what may be happening is that uh, in in recent times, let's say, or even now, uh, the Turkish government is realizing that it's actually the opposite. That what 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 the plan of, of the the empire is is to take away some Turkish territory by creating a new Kurdistan which they will control. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Iraq, I mean, the whole plan for Iraq going, going back to 19, the late 1980s was to break Iraq up into three three separate parts. Mm-hmm. The, the the typical kind of Sunni-Shia divide which they exacerbate and, and, and make a reality on the ground but certainly they were focused very much on Kurds in the north. For, for since, and we're talking here for like 30 years ago, they were planning to break Iraq up and create and give the Kurds an autonomous region or even their own separate 
chunk of land in Iraq. So in 2003, you have the invasion of Iraq <coughs> by the U.S. occupation for 10 years. Um, as they are still, I mean, the U.S. is more or less still in Iraq, but as they leave Iraq, you know, around 2000, what, 2010, 2011 or something, suddenly Libya and Syria kick off more or less at the same time. So they, they, they've done their best to destabilize and create the conditions in Iraq where they can, uh, you know, push for the, the breakup of Iraq in some way, or if necessary, they can, they can ignite that a little bit again to, to, to justify it. And at the same time, right after they've done that, they're in Libya and then straight into Syria, and the goal seems to be the same thing. So I'm looking here, at the, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm tending towards the Kurdish aspect, uh, which is very much supported by, has been supported by Israel, and seems to be the agenda of the West. Uh, and Turkey is set to lose in that scenario. And, but it's a very dangerous game to play because inside Turkey, the, the NATO and the West have for decades fomented this ultra-Turkish nationalist movement, paramilitary nationalist movement that demands not only the safeguarding of the integrity of Turkish territory and culture, but the expansion of it mm-hmm. into these other Turkish regions. So I mean, it's like it's classic. Those people playing these empire, uh, agents of empire playing two games at once, playing opposite games at once. You know, it's, it's very much in keeping with the way they do things, you know. But it's it's just a strange, uh, a very strange situation where you have, um, I mean, there's very clear links, basically, what, is what I'm saying. There's very clear links to the guy who was shooting at that Russian pilot and NATO's Gladio stay behind operation in, in Turkey. And as we were saying earlier on, the thing that made the shootdown of the Russian plane particularly bad was the murder of the pilot and the other guy. Of course, the helicopter that was shot on the day afterwards that came to rescue them that was blown up was blown up with an American anti-tank missile that was delivered directly to to these these people. These delivered to NATO operatives, basically. Uh, and of course, when we say NATO operatives, we don't mean conscious NATO operatives necessarily. These are people who have been funded, encouraged, trained, armed by NATO for decades, and who have their own ideology. NATO comes in and identifies ideologies and funding religious, cultural, whatever, nut jobs in any part of the world and then gives them, takes them to wherever its current battleground is and gives them a little training and then sends them back to destabilize that region. You guys are going to do it because they're from the nut jobs. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't change the fact that they're fully under the control of NATO and they can be stopped or cancelled or withdrawn at any time they want because the only reason they get to go anywhere is under the ages of NATO. Um, but the thing is that these... Um, Back in, I think it was earlier, um, sorry, the Thailand bombing. It was a bombing in Thailand uh, earlier this year. and A month ago or so. Yeah, it was just a month ago. Was it just a month ago? A month or two, maybe. The guy who did that was a Turk uh, affiliated with these grey wolves. When you say Turk, you mean not a Turkish He's national? Turkish but... national, yeah. Oh, and arrested in China afterwards, or in Thailand. Right. Okay. And he's, he is one of these people who are pushing for uh, freedom for our independence for East Turkestan, which is in China. China. Let's call it Xi, Xi Jinping, or not Xi, Xi Jinping, because it's not... Uh, <laughs> Xinjiang, I think. Xinjiang, sorry. Uh, Xi Jinping, someone else. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, 
It's a bad name, East Turkestan, because it sounds like it's over in eastern Turkey somewhere. It isn't in China. But it's because of this linguistic group of Turk, supposedly Turkic-speaking people that spread from Turkey all the way over into western yeah. China. So 1,500 is, years ago. <laughs> we're talking a lot. There used right. to be a country or an empire that was kind of Central Asia right, but this, a long time ago. Right, but this is classic NATO destabilization, getting fundamentalist, uh, nationalistic, mm. jihadi, nutjobs or whatever to put pressure on the enemies of the empire, which is China and Russia. Of course, and these people are central to that, to, that, uh, to that operation, to that goal, and that's what they're used for. I mean, when you look at it, NATO has and has had for a long time this almost unimaginable network of not job jihadi fundies who are all who, who subscribe to, in, in, in the most part, some form of, uh, or primarily most of them, uh, fundamentalist Islam. But in this case, it's Turkish, Turkic nationalism that spreads from Turkey all the way over to China. And they have been taken, I mean, there was that story from um, the tie-in with this bombing in Thailand, is that Thailand, earlier this year, uh, sent, I think it was 10, what they call terrorists, from Thailand, that they had stopped in Thailand, back to China. And they were from this East Turkestan, uh, what's the name in Chinese? Xinjiang. Xinjiang area. And the, and the Thai government sent them back because they were on, where they where were they on their way to? They were on their way to Turkey and Syria ah. to fight with jihad in Syria, fight the Assad government. Well, These are guys from China coming from China to, through Thailand to Syria, and and, makes it and they get sent and they get sent back. Um, these guys were effectively these kind of this kind of grey wolf. Uh, Turkic nationalist movement, uh, there were affiliates of that, and they were coming to cut their teeth in Syria and then be sent back to China to, to carry out terror attacks in China. So Thailand stops them and sends them back to China. Then this, um, this bombing in Thailand that happened, like you said, a couple of months ago, was carried out supposedly as, for, as a punishment, as revenge against the Thai government are sending these guys back to China. The same Eastern, East Turkestan independence movement was, I think it was last year, there was a, a, a terror attack in somewhere in China where two, a few people got out with big long knives and started yeah. and chopped up about 30 people That's and injured 100 more. Mm. Those people are the East Turkestan people who are associated, who are on the, supposedly the same group as this guy who shot down the Russian pilot. Right. Well, before Syria, there was Afghanistan. There were reports, I remember, 10 years ago. Um, even Western journalists reported on it, that there were guys coming from Afghanistan into China. But they were originally from there. Right. You see, you've got double thing going on here. There's not only the hook, the motivational hook, they get them based on Turkic slash nationalist slash ethnic affiliations across Central Asia, but the whole area is also Muslim. Right. So if you can't get them for jihad, you get them for your country and the flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's um, the whole thing's, you know, it's basically, um, it's basically a continuation of the kind of Cold War, uh, NATO's Cold War, effectively against Russia, at containing Russia, and now it's been expanded 
to China. And the next battleground, it seems, that, that they're building up is that central uh, Central Asian area of those stands that were former Soviet republics, and, and, and obviously Afghanistan is one of them. And that is designed to broaden this well, uh, long-term anti-Russian front aimed at pushing Russia back and thwarting Russia in, at every, every opportunity. It's now also being expanded to include, or it has been, it was planned probably 10, 15 years ago, uh, expanded to include stopping China or destabilizing China, putting pressure on China. And that's what these people do. They carry terror attacks against anybody they need to be their enemy. For two weeks before the Russians went into Syria on the last day of September, they held the biggest military exercise since somebody said the 60s, maybe the 70s, ever by anyone. So this is the Russian military, well, under their aegis. But also all the stands were involved and a couple of other central Eurasian countries. The text or theme for the war games was to repel across Eurasian advance of jihadists coming from the south to the north. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole band, they basically, the war games took place over a vast wave of Kazakhstan, which is massive, mm-hmm. into Russia, across much of southern Siberia, it took mm-hmm. place in many areas. Mm-hmm. So they were simulating precisely a war game scenario, right. as you just outlined. Right, and you'd think that that's overkill for a bunch of jihadis, right? Mm-hmm. But look at the plan for Russia, or look at the plan for Syria. The goal there is to uh, spread these jihadis in another kind of uh, ISIS kind of configuration into these former Soviet republics to overthrow the government, to take over the government, and then to use all of the weapons that the U.S. has been trying to foist on these countries to wage war on Russia. And, and if they even got that far, that would be good enough because they would have pushed Russia back. They want to push Russia back to its borders and contain it. They want to isolate and cut Russia off from the rest of the world and the same with China. Accept on and only do business with them and allow them to do business or create these conditions where they cannot do business except on Washington and NATO's terms. So when Putin says at the beginning of this Russian military campaign in Syria, we're doing this over there so we don't have to do this here. Unlike rationale being used by Western leaders away off in their islands in the North Atlantic, he actually means it because he actually sees it coming. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Not certain. Yeah, he sees it. I mean, they're, they're preparing for it well in advance. And not only that, but they're in Syria trying to cut it off, trying to smother it in the cradle, effectively. Yeah. So Russia is very clearly in the broad picture, in the big long-term picture, and it's not even that long-term. Russia is protecting its its national interests, its border, effectively protecting its its border and its interests with other countries on its border, which the U.S. has been trying to stop for so long. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, it is quite complicated, and but in terms of what Russia, what uh, Turkey is trying to do, Turkey's interests in Syria are to. Uh, stick with the original plan, which was get rid of Assad and bring in some government that everybody except Russia and Iran and Iraq can deal with, that everybody West NATO countries will like.
That's who they want to have in Syria. Presumably, they never wanted to blitz their relations with Russia, so they would maybe hope they could work out some kind exactly. of deal or compromise right. Right, with Russia right. down the line. Right. They, never, this happened. they never expected Russia to do what it did in Syria, which is start, bomb, uh, start, start a bombing campaign in Syria. But Russia even after that, I can imagine until six days ago, right, they hoped somewhere... Right, to, to strike an accommodation. Yeah. But Turkey is playing a very dangerous game because Turkey is infiltrated and living with uh, Western powers and influences in, in the form of the NATO stay-behind groups and, and a political party that's directly affiliated with them and a par- and par- <coughs> paramilitary groups able to, for example, overthrow Erdogan. And uh, Turkey wants to stick with the original plan. Just Let's just uh, get rid of Assad and put in a, a new government and we'll get a chunk of, uh, we'll, we'll control the border area at least and maybe get a bit of of Syria that will be under our control, and then everybody's happy, right? NATO, uh, you can NATO and its Gulf uh, Gulf ally states uh, will all be happy because it'll be a compliant regime in uh, in Syria, and we can uh, cut off uh, in that way cut off uh, European dependency on Russian gas by having Qatari gas, and at the same time we'll cut off um, Iran and Iraq. Um, Iran won't be able to supply any of its uh, it's gas. There's a major field there uh, in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, of the PARS um, gas field, which is shared between Qatar and Iran. And Qatar wants to funnel that all the way up uh, into, basically, into Europe through a compliant Syrian government. Uh, and wants and Qatar, obviously, along with the West, wants to stop Iran from exploiting it. Well, it can exploit it, but it's not allowed to bring it through. And the only way to be able to bring it through to Europe would be through Syria. Uh, but if Syria is gone in terms of Assad and there's a NATO plant regime in there, well then it's going to go with Qatar, right? And, and, and Iran gets cut off. At the same time, Iran looking east, if Iran wants to uh, supply China, and China wants to be supplied by Iran, in that direction, they have to go through Afghanistan or and or the stand, where NATO is now in the process of fomenting a jihadi revolution there as well. And NATO occupies Afghanistan. The most direct route from Iran to China will be through Afghanistan. They're not going to go through Pakistan because, well, there's no way through there, basically. Anyway, Pakistan is, uh, is Pakistan intelligence and the government are pretty much aligned with the West. But anyway, when you go through that direction, then you have to go through India and, and to get up to China, you have to go through the Himalayas. So the only real, real way is north of that, through the stand, through Afghanistan, etc., and that's why they're controlling that area as well. So basically these people are blockading, the NATO is trying to blockade uh, China and Russia from doing basically deals, business deals, as in primarily in, in gas and natural resources with, um, with Middle Eastern countries. This is a long game. This goes way beyond Assad's refusal to sign the dotted line on that particular gas deal from Qatar. Mm-hmm. That may have been the straw that broke the poor Campbell's back, but that was only one symptom of uh, a symptom, <clears throat> not the word. That was only one near-term factor in a much bigger chess game. Right, that's basically what we're saying there. Right, and Syria is, is is sitting in the middle of that big chess game and had to be dealt with, and Syria because of its long-term. Association long-term uh, alliance <coughs> with Russia decided to stick to its guns and decided to take take the moral the moral path and say, okay, we're not going to screw. The Assad government literally said that we're not going to 
allow Russia. We're not going to, yeah. Mm. And we're not going to prevent Russia from, or we're not going to allow Qatari and Middle Eastern gas to subvert or to supplant Russian gas to Europe because Europe is a big customer of, of Russia and we're not going to facilitate or be a party to uh, cutting off Russian Russians' uh, market to Europe by allowing Middle Eastern Qatari gas to get into Europe. And right in the middle of it, you also have Turkey there, and Turkey has to be managed very seriously. Uh, Syria is being managed. Syria was always, just get rid of it. Get rid of Assad, that's it. To get rid of that, that government, and there's no way we're going to be able to deal with those people. They tried to back in 2002, 2003, and they got Blair when he faded uh, Assad and, and his wife at, uh, in London, and the Queen had them over for tea and crumpets at Buckingham Palace. That was 2002, and it was in the, in the year or two after that when they realized that Assad wasn't budging. They started to prepare, effectively, uh, the, what's, what's happening, what happened in 2011. Um, but uh, Turkey is a problem in that it's a NATO, it's a NATO member, but it has, it has to decide. It has long-standing ties, as we've mentioned, that, that have been ruined just this week with Russia. Russia supplies about 65 to 70% of Turkey's energy needs. Uh, and as Putin said, they were more or less an ally of Russia, even though we were a NATO member. Uh, NATO wanted them fully on board, effectively at the expense of Turkey. Uh, at the expense of any kind of nationalist, let's say, right-thinking Turkic government, effectively, who would have Turkey's interests uh, at heart. Because there are other groups in there who don't really care, who are who are a bit crazy, like those these right-wing nationalist Turkic-speaking people. They're just a joke, but they're being exploited, and they're dangerous because they can be exploited by NATO. So Turkey had to be forced to choose, and Turkey may have been prevaricating or being a bit ambivalent about the whole situation, and not fully on board. I was thinking it, it could plow its own course, and even diverge from a NATO plan for Syria, and for like I said, for the Kurds. Creating a Kurdistan and part of Turkey. Part of it's probably wouldn't say that to Turkey, obviously, but the danger has always been there for Turkey. Obviously, Turkey has a long-standing problem with the Kurds wanting independence, and they're a big portion. They're about 15% of the Turkish population, and that has been the real thorn in Turkey's side for so long. And they've always been afraid of losing part of their territory. <clears throat> they saw, I mean, the public deals going on in that sense. Where Turkey said, "Listen, you're not going to do anything with Turkey here. I mean, you can give the Kurds." part of Syria, part of Iraq, even if you want, but they're not getting part of Turkey, right? And even then, we're not very happy about the Kurds getting any kind of, uh, unless you keep them fully fully under control. Okay, we'll go with it. But as things start to evolve, Turkey starts to get cold feet, starts to worry about the situation. And then in the middle of that, you have Turkey shooting down a Russian airplane. And then you have Erdogan's very strange behavior, flip-flopping from... yeah from arrogant to pusillanimous and back again and back again wow um, does Putin know all this yeah so the very fact playing look at it this way the, the Russians are pretty much fully on, on, on board here and that's why they were surprised the fact that Russia knows in, in minute detail about what's going on is, is, is the fact that they were bombing that particular area Grey Wolf Grey Wolves organization 
right-wing Turkish nationalist organization that's run by NATO, that they were in that area. Um, as we saw afterwards by the guy who came out and was shooting at the at the at the pilot. Um, the fact that Russia was bombing that area where they are and that group is, is effectively a historical uh, has direct ties to Western U.S. NATO uh, war on Russia in Chechnya that they fought in Chechnya against Russian soldiers. And these, I mean, put it this way: the guy who shot down that Russian pilot who shot that Russian pilot in the air as he was falling down. That guy, it's possible that he personally or one of his kin uh, um, uh, 15 years ago was shooting Russian soldiers in Chechnya. Yeah. So the fact that Russia was bombing him and his, his kind is no mistake. And it, took, and it points to the fact that Russia has very good intelligence about what's going on on the ground in the whole region, in Syria, in Turkey, all over the place. They know pretty much what's going on. What they didn't expect, and I think Putin's surprise and his statement about it being stabbed in the back uh, what, uh, is genuine, they didn't expect Turkey to have any part or to be in, in a position where they could allow or they were not able to stop or were in some way kind of uh, involved in a shooting down of the Russian plane by a Turkish air force, that they either that they were in some way involved in it, crazy enough to actually do it, or that they weren't able to stop it, that Erdogan has so little control over the situation, or that there's such a strong fifth element within the Turkish military and Turkish intelligence, uh, i.e. a NATO element effectively, mm-hmm that Erdogan could not stop uh, the shoot-down of the Russian plane. So in a way, the surprise is genuine. <clears throat> uh, Erdogan? Uh, Putin's. Putin's is genuine, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it seems like a very, it was a very well-planned, sneaky, yeah. sneaky attack uh, from Turkish airspace. It didn't even come into Syrian airspace, uh, and they, it was just a sneaky missile from they take down a Russian plane, and the result is, like like we're saying, is that it sours the relationship between uh, almost possibly irrevocably. Uh, um, but does not, Russia not have a choice in, in tempering its retaliation? Its retaliation seems to be full bore. These people, yeah, but these people are the people who are. He's decided to hold Turkey responsible. A big part of doing this, what these people, the strategy of these Western empire builders, an empire of chaos and chaos nut jobs, is very underhanded, very sneaky, very dirty, in that <clears throat> if they can't attack you directly, if they can't just go in and bomb your country and kill you, which they can't do with Russia, obviously, um, they have other ways of getting at you and it's kind of like a chess game in the sense of it's thinking a few steps ahead and it requires you who's being attacked to think several steps ahead as well. It's a kind of mind, kind of mental martial arts almost, you know. And um, what they do is they will attack you in an asymmetric, non-linear, let's say, kind of way and put you in a position where you have to do something. <coughs> they shoot down a Russian passenger plane over Sinai. Uh, it doesn't really achieve much. Russia's not intimidated. It's pissed off. It's not intimidated. But it has to do something in response. It's got public opinion back at home. Yeah. 
the way that if they can't attack you directly, they'll attack your public effectively, or they'll try and influence you yeah. by influencing your public opinion right. back at home. The British press and the American press were all, oh, ISIS did it, right. while the Russians were quiet. Right. <laughs> Here we are telling you how right. we're, we're priming your public right. to accept this. Right. And the same with the shoot-down of the Russian bomber um, just this week. Uh, public, Russian public opinion was outraged and the Russian government, Putin, has to respond to that in some way. You have to, I mean, you have to look like a, a strong leader and you have to do and say all the right things, the things that people, the Russian people expect of you. Um, you can't seem to, you seem to be weak. You know, you can't yep. say, oh, but it doesn't matter. You can't, you know, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It matters to the Russian people, therefore it matters to you, Putin. So you better strike the right tone. Right. The same applies to Erdogan. The same applies to everybody. All of these kind of leaders, so-called leaders of the world, uh, they all have to appear for public consumption to be strong, authoritative, etc. Okay. In the short term, Russia has leveled the area in question in the northwest of Syria. They've also brought in S-400, which apparently gives them basically control of a no-fly zone over mm-hmm. all of Syria. Mm-hmm. Short term, isn't that something the Western powers of the would not want to see happen? Could they not have seen that coming? Because now they want to send in jets into an area in which the Russians can shoot them out of the sky mm-hmm. instantaneously. The people we're talking about here are people who would like to see some NATO jets shot out of the sky. Okay. They're, they're, it's almost like a base. Go on, Russia. You, you go right ahead and do that. Yeah. These people are the, the transnational, global kind of elite who engage in manipulation of global opinion and have this broad game that they're playing and are untouched by any national kind of concerns effectively except that they uh, their agenda is being pushed is being is being furthered their agenda for the whole world is being furthered so small details about uh, who uh, who gets shot down or who doesn't or who looks bad or you know I mean, they don't care and in fact at a certain point uh, it's part it probably is part of their plan to have some American plane shot down you know yeah that's, that's not it's not it's not an injury to them they're not American in that sense. Mm-hmm. They're, they're globalists, as Alex Jones would say, uh, and, and they, they control the world, or they'd like to think they control the world, so they operate at that level. You know, at the, le- at the, at the local level of manipulating popular opinion and public opinion by uh, having terror attacks against all these people, at the level of overthrowing governments, and at the level of having one country fight against another, including their own their own seat of power type thing because they are completely untouched by all of it. As long as the actions that they take, even if it's a self-inflicted wound or appears to be a self-inflicted wound to their seat of power, as long as that furthers their agenda because they see that when we attack ourselves in this way, two steps down the line, we're getting, we're pushing our agenda forward. Right. As a result, when we take the, the responses, when we respond to the self-inflicted wound, Insecurity, they basically want insecurity everywhere. They thrive on chaos and everything just being a strategy of tension <clears> on <throat> a global scale. Right. I mean, the atmosphere, exactly. 
the atmosphere in any given country or in the world, if they can get to that point. Uh, for example, the atmosphere in the world, and particularly in, in France and in Europe, after the Paris attacks, these horrible Paris attacks where so many people were killed, there was, there's a palpable sense, and this is true for any major kind of attack where people are screaming to kill, there's a palpable sense of insecurity. Yeah. And these people, in some way or other, feed on that. They enjoy it. They like it. That's, their, that's when they're in the zone type thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the, the more they can do that, the better for them. The, the more that, that, That's what they're striving for, to, to create as much chaos and insecurity amongst the ordinary people of this world as possible. They want a, an entire global climate of fear and insecurity. And At which point people accept... <clears throat> Twenty or thirty thousand troops patrolling the streets, all right. cafes and restaurants and museums shut down. Right. Not allowed to take any photos of what's going on. Mm-hmm. To the point where the mayor of Brussels said, after the third day of this, he goes, "Listen, uh, can, we, can we scale down on this because we're effectively turning the place I govern into an Islamic, into an Islamic state, mm-hmm. which is kind of not the direction we want to go in." Right. No, well, it is. It is for, oh, it's for the yeah. powers to be. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, it, it's kind of like wrecking these people. They've they even used this term creative destruction, which is just like an oxymoron, but there you go, it's creative destruction. Um, well, they want to destroy the, the structures and infrastructures that have been set up, that they themselves have played a part in setting up, and now they want to break it all down again. It's like they're putting jigsaw puzzle together and then wrecking it all so you can put it together in a different format. Yeah. And you have to wreck it first before you can be creative. And it works for them because the last time they created, say, the Middle East, they did it after having wrecked the place and in that situation you've got mass unrest and stress, terror, and that's the ideal time in which to reconfigure and recreate it. Right. So, yes, the payoff is in the terror. Absolutely. These people feed on it, you know. It, it seems to be their food, effectively. And... Um, it's it's pretty pretty horrible. I mean, there's no other there's no other way to explain it really when you see what they do, you know. Um, um, the Western leaders, I mean, the actual politicians, are all gung ho this week about doing their bit to defeat ISIS in Syria. Mm-hmm. What do you see going on here? I mean, the Brits are like, we absolutely must bomb Syria. We just must. Because today they're saying we're in danger, like Britain's being threatened yeah. by IS in Syria. The Germans are talking about sending 1,200 Air Force personnel to either Turkey or Jordan. Presumably, yes, they, they, they would help the French who are already there. Yeah, what's going on here? I mean, are they going to... They, they can't... Oh, maybe they can. Maybe in light of what you just said, the situation is perfectly right for a Russian to take down a French jet or a British or Russian and vice versa. The problem I have with this is it could easily create a situation that gets out of their control, no? In what respect? Say a country in the Middle East, um, Iraq, seems to be the next one to fall, so to speak, into Russia's sphere of influence. Yeah. 
I mean, that could happen any day now, no? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. At which point your Kurdistan project just took a hit because the Iraqis would be all the more determined to consolidate their territorial sovereignty. Mm. To hell with an independent Kurdistan. It's all about, it's all, yeah, it's gone wrong for them as soon as Russia, and it went wrong for them as soon as Russia started to intervene directly in the, in Syria. And they're having to, at this point, make it up as they go along. Yeah, in terms of the narrative, like uh, Stephen was saying in the call earlier, what, what can they do? Obama's talking about sending nearly a billion dollars worth of weapons into Syria. Now, a lot of people, if not masses of people, but a lot of people know what he means. He's going to send it to the people Russia is bombing. Um, what are they hoping to get out? Are they going to try and meld the narrative so that Russia is doing what we're doing and what we've been doing all along, and it's going to work? People are going to accept that? Mm. The narrative, at the narrative level, then. Yeah. I think, I think what we're seeing at this point is um, you notice that they... They went to Vienna for these talks, these possible peace yeah. talks, and there's going to be more next year, early next year. Uh, peace talks about a solution for Syria. And what you're seeing right now is each of the interested parties kind of doing as much as they possibly can to influence the situation in their favor in lieu of or in advance of having to sit down and talk about it. Because well, when you sit down and talk, when these people sit down in Russia, uh, NATO and uh, Turkey, uh, and whoever else sit down uh, at the table, uh, they're going to have to say what they'll what they present is effectively their facts on the ground. And that would be their argument for their position. There's no point in saying, well, I'd like to have this happen. Russia can't say, well, I would like uh, for, you know, these elements of uh, of the Assad government to be to be in the next in the new government if um, if, if nobody in the Assad government is there anymore can I, can I bring them back no we defeated them they're gone you know uh, the the NATO can't say well we demand we're we're insisting that this happens uh, like that these moderate these representatives of the moderate rebels uh, take take a position uh, if first of all. They, they're dead, <laughs> or, or there's no one to pick from. And secondly, if they don't hold any territory in Syria, if they're all gone. Yeah. You know, if you get to a situation where uh, if, if Russia continues long enough and the Assad government is still intact and the Syrian army controls all of the Syrian territory, NATO and, uh, and Turkey won't even come to, to a meeting. There'll be no meeting that we had. You know, yeah. the only... The only the only situation where you would have an actual discussion about what's going to happen in a new Syrian government, a discussion between competing parties, is if they all have some skin in the game type of thing, if they all have leverage. Right. So, so at this point, with this threat effectively of having to sit down at a table to negotiate, which is what NATO hates the most, uh, they're doing their utmost to control as much of the situation as possible so they have as much negotiating power as possible to get what they want out of it. I mean, I can't imagine how it would actually work, but maybe Putin's blowing the hell out of their facts on the ground. I know, but you know, the the Americans, not the Americans, the British, there's a British, which is kind of indicative if if, if there's anything serious about it, uh, some British uh, general 
he's an active general, not one of these retired ones, but an active one said that they're going to need the Brits are going to need boots on the ground right. to defeat ISIS. <clears throat> now, if they're preparing Vlad to come bomb them, well, that's that's their that's their bottom, that's their trump card, effectively, yeah. which is put NATO troops as human shields, yeah, effectively in the country. And men say, okay, that could call a halt. That could be a trump card to call a halt at a time if they're choosing, call a halt to the whole situation. Um, to, to stop the war effect, they will be put a bunch of uh, NATO troops in there, and then there's no more bombing and everything has to come to a halt. I mean, the big threat that uh, NATO has over Russia is war with NATO, war with any NATO country. Any kind of uh, aggression between the Russian military and the NATO country military. And that's what they're holding over the Russians' head, effectively. That's their trump card. Uh, of course, no NATO country wants that to happen, including the U.S. government. But like we've been talking about, there is this supranational uh, clique who is effectively a wild card, and you don't know if they would be willing to go there type of thing, you know, uh, to really push it, because they know that Putin... And Russia is effectively a peace-loving country. And your that's their weakness. Their weakness, as far as NATO, as far as, as far as this tra- supranational, transnational elite is concerned, is, is, is that's yeah, that that's Russia's weakness. And they will kind of prod, prod and provoke and threaten Russia effectively with the threat of uh, war, some kind of a serious kind of Cuban missile crisis type situation you know, where there's a real, seems to be a real possibility that uh, the governments of Russia and uh, some other NATO country, Germany or France or the UK or something, would be really put in a position where they would find it difficult to back down, mm. you know? Uh, and again, that's insecurity and fear around the world and that's what this kind of elite seem to enjoy, you know, but they play this kind of stealthy game where they, they push it and then back off and then push it and back off. They seem to have the kind of goal. But of course, I'm not saying that they're all powerful. And these kind of people can and will and do make mistakes. And ultimately, I think they'll fail. Um, but they can do a lot of damage in failing in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we... Got a few good answers there, right, for Stephen and all our listeners. Um, apologies again that we didn't get Garoto Coleman on. Maybe another time. Yeah, but before we go, um, I think I'm going to try and get um, since since we enjoyed him so much last week, I'm going to try and get uh, Aloysius O'Reilly if you remember let's, him. Right, let's he's, do that. He's our uh, roving. Roving reporter, um, this is the uh, another State of the Universe report, um, I hope. Uh, it's, it's our, as I said, our reporter at large, uh, Aloysius Riley. He's a Vietnam veteran. He hangs out in the swamp somewhere, but he's very key, keyed in on, on stuff that goes on in the world. I don't know how. He must be hooked into some kind of NSA mainframe. So let me see if uh, I can get him on the, on the phone here. Corner's office, you slab them, we grab them, the deader the better.
Uh, uh, hi, hello, you know, it's actually Joe here from uh, Behind the Headlines about your state of the... Oh, hey, I almost forgot. Of, well, yeah. well, with Turkey's military more frantic and a cat trying to bury shit on a marble floor. Now, before you think that Mr. Erdogan's just about dumb enough to start an argument in an empty house, you might want to give pause to the grand strategy of Western powers. See, what you need is a patsy, and your average Turk's about as dense as a lead cheesecake, and the politicians of any country being logarithmically more retarded than their constituency, Turkey's regime was high on the list of people the West could afford to lose. Shooting down Putin's SU-24 may seem about as stupid as beating on a wasp's nest with a feather duster, but you've forgotten the first rule of villainy. Mercilessly betray one of your own henchmen to prove to the audience how badass you are. This whole Syrian dust-up is the perfect opportunity for some grand drama to play out, and now Russia can give NATO a shoulder colder than a Puritan's whim. What you're watching here is political professional wrestling at its finest. Now we get to watch Putin do a heel-faced turn faster than the late 90s Dwayne Johnson, because a bird in the hand means you ain't got to beat around the bush, and Putin's got Erdogan by the wavos over this SU-24 business, and he's going to milk it for all the tea in China. Of course, the backlash against Turkey has only begun, what with Russia canceling their visa turnstile and Italy seizing a shipment of 847 combat shotguns on account of the bureaucratic oversight, which is starting to look more like Turkey was supplying guns to terrorists in Belgium. Hmm, where's I heard about Belgium lately? Oh yeah, that's where them Paris attacks was being planned by some jihadis. Speaking of Turkey, good old Donald Trump has fallen in the polls on account of him mocking some spasmoid. All I can say is it takes one to know one, Donnie. You want to get on TV and make fun of some disabled boy, well, son, then you're so dumb you couldn't pour piss out of a boot if the instructions was written on the heel. Now, it's one thing to make a disabled joke and include them folks in the fun, as well another thing entirely to publicly mock a disabled person. On a funnier note, China has decided to set up a naval base right next to the U.S. air base in Djibouti, which, despite what you might think, is not a dance club in Harlem. Elsewhere's, one Joseph Caputo decided he'd jump the fence of the White House while draped in an American flag. The White House went on full lockdown, and he was arrested. It's pretty interesting how quickly they go into a panic mode the minute some Yahoo scales the fence. Seems they realize that the greatest danger to the President of the United States is patriotic Americans. I've always wondered about the amount of bodyguards required by the American President. You'd think in a democracy, if that many people didn't want you in charge, they'd try and find someone else. There's also something disturbingly undemocratic about such a protection scheme. If the President had to take his chances walking the streets like everybody else, he'd probably make fewer cuts to social and educational programs. And finally, the slow and torturous decline of the American spirit is best summed up in the story just out about the banning of pillow fights at West Point, on account of too many injuries. As an aside, I heard it was actually on account of several pillowcase malfunctions among the school choir boys. Apparently they was chewed clean through. wonder how that happened. I don't think we'd look any more like wusses unless they'd replace the pillow fights with a transvestite competition. I can't imagine what is worse for those boys, the fact that they was pillow fighting like a bunch of midnight golfers, or the fact that that was even too rough for the future military leaders of this great nation. God help us. Uh-huh, so, okay, that was, uh, that was Aloysius. That was, well, that was rapid fire. That was very, uh, very, very insightful commentary there on um he's got his finger on the pulse. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, um yeah, I think we're gonna leave it there for this week folks. Um we we're sorry again as we didn't get um 
garage on the uh, on the show. Uh, we'll find out why, um, and hopefully we'll get them we'll get them back. We'll, yeah. we'll schedule something and set something up uh, in the very near future. So um, yeah. Anyway, until then, until uh, next week, we'll be back at the same time, same place. Uh, thanks to Stephen O'Connor and to you guys for listening and participating in the chat room. I hope you have a good evening. Thanks, y'all. See you next week. Bye-bye.